0: And surprisingly, this is this is what really caught me off guard. And I was like, wow, there's a big white space in this market that needs filling. And that was that even the agents selling these pre-seals had no clue what they were selling.
1: Crazy. Welcome to The Flow, real estate and money show for people in Canada looking to understand the home buying process, to demystify real estate investing, and to make mortgage financing accessible for anyone. The goal here on this show is to help people understand ways to make their money work for them Get in the market sooner and realistically, completely open up the box on how mortgage financing works. I'm Alex McFadden, your host, and I can't wait to help get you into the flow. Pre-sales, pre-sales, pre-sales. This is a topic that it's so interesting in the last couple of years has become a nonstop buzzword. And the thing about it is it's almost looked at as some kind of mystical thing purchase. So really, we're gonna break this down to you. What is a pre-sale? Why should you consider it? Where should you be looking for a pre-sale? What are all the things that you want to avoid? And, you know, I'm not the expert to speak on that. So what I did is I brought in uh, someone who focuses virtually all of his business, specifically on the pre-sale new development market. His name is Uzair. Uh, he's a real estate agent with uh, Real Brokerage. And he joined us today to talk about all things pre-sale. There is so much gold in this episode, so many nuggets, so much information that we probably should do two or three episodes, but we tried to pack as much as we could into this one single episode. You're gonna love this today, guys. It's so good. And if you do love this episode, make sure to leave us an awesome review on iTunes. That would mean the world to me. Share this with a friend. And if you'd like to find out more about what we do day-to-day, follow us on our channels at Flow Mortgage Co. And as always, we hope you find your state of flow. All right, all right, all right. Pre-sales, 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 pre-sales. This is like a it's like a a word that is on one hand can be a trigger for some people and gets them excited. On the other hand, it gets people stressed out and anxious depending on what your experience has been, your background and just whether or not you even know what a pre-sale is. So I'm fired up to have this conversation today with my man Uzair who is gonna be the new pre-sale. I don't know if you like hearing this yet but you're gonna be considered the new pre-sale king eventually. Are you okay with that? <laughs>
0: Be all right. I, I, I just haven't absorbed it fully yet. I'm just focused on uh, education. So there we go. There we go.
1: And that's why we get along, and that's why you're here today, man. So for everybody listening to the podcast episode, you know the primary focus here is to bring people in and, and teach them about different types of tools and strategies to help them create a better life through real estate. And and so this is why I thought it was so cool to have you come on, man, because you got a really cool story, and you've been really hyper focused on teaching people about this different strategy of investing, which is definitely not right for everyone, but for the right people it can make sense. And and so we're going to dig deep into this today, talk about what it, what is a presale, you know, how how it became something that you were hyper interested in and of course specifically how you teach people what to look for when it comes to real estate investing. And so it would be crazy for me not to talk a little bit about you to get started, man. 140 million dollars of presale properties sold in the last 2 years. 20 two and a half years, right. which is uh, very incredible. Helped a lot of families find these opportunities and, and you're still doing it today. So a lot of yeah. presentations, but what's unique and, and I'm gonna shut up and let you talk real quickly here is that you work uh, also to educate people in the real estate industry, how to help out their clients as well. So you're giving back, which is really cool. So is there what, man, right off the beginning, like what got you focused on pre-sale properties right out the gate, like, or, or was it right out the gate?
0: Yeah, so I got into the business just after COVID. So mm-hmm. in COVID, I was like, I need to come out with the scale. I was wanting to get into <clears throat> real estate back in 2015, 16, just with a nine to five, never got a chance to really commit to it. COVID allowed me to commit, get the license and then get into a real estate. I had a background working for the cities. So I knew the planning, the zoning, how developments come to market, kind of market where things are growing, where things are going, you know, and growth-wise, all those plans was always in the back of my head when I was working for the city. So when I got into the business, of course, the market was hot 2021. Off the gate, <clears throat> deals were happening left, right, and center. There was business flowing in your lap, basically, at the time. But what I found really interesting in the business was, especially the pre-sale side, people buying pre-sales, 95% of them had no clue what they were buying. Mm-hmm. All they knew was they are buying a one bedroom for a certain price with a certain deposit structure and they're buying it in a certain location with, you know, whichever floor it is on. And that's all they knew. They knew nothing about the developer. They knew nothing what's in that contract because realistically all you're buying is the contract. Mm-hmm. So when I did few deals in the pre-sale side and I educated myself plus try to educate my clients and I found they weren't really interested in the education, they just wanted to make money. Mm. So what I found is everyone was doing pre-sale, but nobody was educating anybody on pre-sales. And the reality of pre-sales is 95% of what you're buying is really that contract, which is 50 pages long and a 200 page disclosure statement. That's wow.
1: wild. You're, you're buying a contract.
0: You're buying a piece of paper.
1: For for a half million, a million dollars, $2 million. And you're, you're buying a piece of paper and and you don't know what's on that piece of paper, but there's something at the end. You're going to make money, right? That's exactly. what people are thinking.
0: Exactly. All they knew was a floor plan and where it's going to be located in the building and whatever they paid for it. And that's all they knew and nobody was educating on this topic. And surprisingly, this is this is what really caught me off guard. And I was like, wow, there's a big white space in this market that needs filling. And that was that even the agents selling these pre-seals had no clue what they were selling. Crazy. Because mm-hmm. ultimately the walkthrough of this purchase is you walk into a presentation center and they tell you this is a floor plan that's available. Here's a building, here's a model, and here's what you're going to pay. And the agent just takes the IDs and hands it over to the presentation center rep And they'll draft up a contract, which is drafted by the lawyers of the developer. And then they do a docu sign. done, 25 signatures are done, and they have no idea what they bought.
1: Okay, okay. So we need to take some steps back here because that's a lot. And I'm sure anybody listening to this is probably like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But wait, wait, hold on a second here. What are you talking about? So so why don't we go back to like pre-sales as a general rule? Like, you know, you're buying a contract, as you mentioned, but let's just define a pre-sale because... I think people get mixed up between new construction yep. and pre-sale and what is that and what does it mean? So so how would you define a pre-sale to someone? How would you define that?
0: So pre-construction for me is very simple. You're buying uh, a contract for an exclusive right of ownership to an ex- uh, building that is being proposed by a developer. So developer has acquired the land, they have proposed plans on it and what they need now is to get a building permit. It's already been submitted to city hall, they just haven't approved it yet. And two, they need to get their financing in place. So that is what's going to happen. So once they file for something called a disclosure statement, which is like the blueprint of the the development, it goes through certain readings, approval, and once the building is, for example, sold out in a pre-construction phase where 70% of the units are now in exclusive contracts, firm contracts, where people have put their deposits to exclusive ownership, now they take that contract, go to a lender and say, hey, we have 70% sold, which is one of the requirements, or it could be 60%, just depending on the developer and the lender. And then they file it with the city to get their building permit. So here, that's the next phase. This
1: is crazy because I think, well, we, I know this, but I think most people don't realize that when they purchase a pre sale property, it's still in very much a planning phase, and in many circumstances, a developer, depending on the size of developer, has not secured financing. With the with no. the exception of perhaps a very, very, very large developer that's got deep pockets and they they have you know nearly guaranteed contracts. Exactly. Most of them are using these pre sale dollars and deposits to secure the actual financing as leverage. Right. That's right. That's right. In most, I, I think, generally speaking, uh, a vast majority of consumers don't realize that as they consider this, and which is obviously very important understanding as to who is. Exactly. So the rule of
0: thumb is if they have broken ground, they have financing in place and they have building permit in place. If they haven't broken ground, they still need to get their building permit and they still need to get their financing in place. So if you're looking at a pre-construction project, just go to the site, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've seen developers where they'll break ground because they have enough cash on hand to break ground and get to pre-construction. They'll still pre-sell these units, but they just have financing and building permit in place. They're about a year ahead for their pre-construction phase.
1: Right and i don't know if most people have heard this yet and i will assume nothing but i i would imagine that most people don't realize that that in some situations these deals don't come together and there are some issues with potential pre-sale properties 100%. and there is a risk associated with that right like uh, have you come across any or seen any i don't know horror stories but you know negative outcomes
0: exactly so going back to the horror story and how presales don't pan out for a lot of people so I can tell you right now in Surrey Central, especially speaking in the F- Fleetwood area, there's projects that went through a pre-sale phase, 70, 80, 90% of the building is sold out in firm contracts. It's been over a year, they still haven't gotten their financing or building permit. And you know what the crazy part is? None of these agents are reaching out to the developer to seek and get more details as to why that hasn't been done. Hmm. Because as a standard clause of these contract, which is by the board, is to and the marketing policies that once they file disclosure, they have exactly 12 months to get their building permit and financing in place. Mm. If they haven't filed for the first amendment within the 12 months, and even if the building is 100% sold out, you as a purchaser now have this small window of opportunity to go back to the developer and say, Hey, give me an update on what's going on. And this is the agent's job. To keep an eye on this project to make sure that their client's money is protected. If they don't have building permit, they then go on and exercise their termination clause and say, "Hey, you have not quali- uh, you have not complied with your clauses, which is to get a building permit and financing in twelve months of disclosure. We are now exercising our termination. We need our deposit back in our pocket, so we can go and use that money to put somewhere else, wherever you want to go." Wow. The crazy part is the horror stories we hear on the so- on the media when it hits the media is because all these agents have never exercised their right because they don't know what they're buying. Okay.
1: So no you, you know the contract, right? Know the contract, read the contract. I, I mean, we're getting we're getting a little further than I want to, but that's some good information. I think we should come back to that as we as we kind of get through this conversation here too, but what I really want to dive into as we get started here is it's just a conversation of like what sets pre-sales apart from you know other real estates as investments. I mean, I'm not a an advocate to or for or against a presale property. I've bought one before and I've I've seen and felt the, the, the downside, but I've also seen the positives on it. Mm-hmm. But like I guess what in your mind just to break it down really simple for somebody who's never bought a presale, like what sets it apart from a typical resale property when it comes to buying it for an investment purposes? Mhm.
0: So if somebody is looking to buy their first pre-sale, what they really wanna start off is find somebody who knows what they're talking about, especially the agent. Sure. So they'll find you the project. It's not the projects that make you the money. It is the price you pay in these projects that makes you the money. So you will see a lot of projects hit the market and you'll be like, which one do I pick? Do I pick the high rise? Do I pick the low rise? Do I go Surrey Central? Do I go Langley? Where do I go? Yeah. So that's where your investment plan has to come in place. You have to sit down with somebody who's professional, who knows what they're doing. And you sit down with them and say, my plan is to close on this property, and then rent it out for two years after that. Can you find me a property that requires minimum down payment? You're looking between 10 to 15%. If you go less than 10%, you're running the risk of either overpaying or the property's close to completion because that's the only time a developer will allow you to do 5% down. Right, okay. So that's one thing to keep an eye out for. Two, once you have sat down with this person, put a plan in place for this because you're never buying it to flip it, which is the wrong approach to any pre Mm -hmm. sales So you need a plan in place and then you need to come up with their budget, whatever you're comfortable with. If it's 10% of whatever purchase price, you need to really be comfortable with this money. If you put the money away for the next three to four years, you don't need to touch this money. That's the approach you're going with. If you buy a pre-sale and you're like, oh, I'm like really stretching, you don't want to put the money in pre-sale. Mm. So if you're stretching for $50,000, don't do it because what's going to happen is once you need the money, you can't offload this.
1: Man, there's two things I got to jump in real quickly here. Like the first one is obviously what you just said right now, which Mm -hmm. is don't stretch yourself to buy a presale because it's going to be two to three years versus not suggesting you should stretch yourself for a resale either, but Mm -hmm. in particular presale because you can't get that money out. It's, it's locked in. Right. And the second thing, which was supposed to be later, but you already hit it. So is the idea of flipping and, I mean, let's just get into it right now, man, because that is the number one reason I hear people that are looking to buy a pre-sale property mm-hmm. as an investment, especially if they're buying. I mean, people across Canada listen to this, but especially if they're buying it in Western Canada mm-hmm. and and even in Ontario, Toronto area as well. Same sort of thing is because I want to buy it because it's going to go up in value. I'm going to flip it. I'm going to assign it to somebody else. We'll talk about assigning in a minute, but no. that's the number one reason. And so what I heard from you is you should always have the desire to close and keep it for, what you said, two years?
0: Uh, three, three, three years is very average. Three years, three okay. Years, yeah. so, well, why three years? So here's the plan we're going. I'll break it down for you, it's very simple. It's a sure. five-year plan. If you called me and said, hey, I'm looking at pre-sales, we'll sit down, the budget, where you're looking, what's the plan? plan is going to be minimum five years of holding time. In that five years, we're gonna leave three years, three and a half years for construction phase. Our, our goal is to hold that asset for as long as possible with the majority of that time frame being not in a mortgage. So what I'm looking at a pre-sale, I'm looking at, okay, if the resale unit is 500,000, the maximum I'm willing to go and pay for a premium in a pre-sale would be 5%, maximum. I don't care which location. We're looking at a pre-sale unit that's worth 525. We buy that with 10% down. We hold it three and a half years in construction phase, close on it for another two years, rent it out, and then we plan this out. Do you want to take equity out? Do you want to sell this? And that's when you, when, when you make that decision. But if that plan is not in line with what you want to do, we don't work together. Mm. Because that is the only way to make sure that one, you don't lose your money, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have expectations that are not, that are going to be high risk. Mm-hmm. If you put $50,000 away and you can't close on this property and you thought you were going to flip this, Guess what? Your fifty thousand is gone, and if the market goes down, like you know, where it has been in the, in the last year and a half, some developers have you know the market value has come down for units. They can sue you for the da- damages mm. for the difference in price that you agreed to purchase, and now you can't close on it.
1: Yep. So a five year plan. Is there any uh, stats or is there a specific reason that you came up with this three to five you know outcome? Like how did you get to that?
0: Yep. So five years is, is, is very straight, simple. One, it tells me that the client is, has the capacity to close on this, They see the vision that I see. Because what happens is when you're talking to anybody about pre-sales, they're one selling you on a two to three year flip, right? And that's what this kind of five year plan looks over. We're not flipping this. Then two is that you also understand that this is an investment that you're going to now go and rent out. That gives me the understanding that you're open to renting this out and holding it for a little bit longer period. And most most investors that we work with close, rent out, and then we'd say, hey, how much equity is in this property? Mm. Even maybe at closing, if the unit's gone up $50,000, maybe we don't access the e- equity right away. Mm. We access it a little bit down the road. At least he has equity in this property. Mm. It's th- The whole point is how do we get in with the minimum down payment, which is let's just say 10%, right? You write out three and a half years, And then you come up with the remaining if you're going to do full 20% down, right? It gives you more time to come up with more equity. And that opens the door to a lot of new investors, first time investors, right? put 10% down, three and a half years in construction phase, we come up with the remaining balance on completion, close on it, put our tenant in there,
1: it's a test in delayed gratification exactly. for me. Uh, delayed gratification uh, is something that most people don't have. As you noted, they want to just get the money in and have the magic of, of equity happen. And no. then boom, they flip it and it's gone and no. it and over from there. And we know that real estate investing doesn't work that way, mm-hmm. both in resale or presale. So right. I like the strategy for two ends. One, because you know that there's no guarantees in the value going up. But number two, that you are, are checking to see if someone has the fortitude to be able to hold that property for a few years. Let's go back to that point about flipping mm-hmm. and and talk about that. So you're talking to people daily and weekly about buying real estate and investment. What do you typically say to them when they say, I wanna to flip to make money? Mm-hmm. And, and, and do you find that a lot of those people convert to this five-year rule, or do you feel like a lot of those people decide not to move forward when you say, hey, no, don't flip it?
0: Yeah, so if, once we come to that point where we're deciding whether we're gonna flip this or not, And if they're not in line with this plan, they either decide that this is not something that they want to explore because they either heard it from a friend who made $100,000 on a flip and they're expecting the same returns. And then they decide, okay, this is not for me and I'm probably not gonna be able to close on it, so I'm not getting into this. Two, they know that they can close on this, they have the capacity to close on it, but what they then do is then they think about it as a portfolio Mm. building stage. Then we sit down and make sure that, hey, we're starting with one, Once we get to the closing then you rent it out we can start to explore more options with the equity that you have and put it into a next pre-sale so when you break that down it's a long-term plan but it's not a two-year flip flipping will happen it has happened but here's one flip will happen and this is this is very important if the market is very low on inventory there's nothing on the market as a one bedroom two bedroom unit in let's just say for example surrey central and buyers are getting ruled out in multiple offers that is the only time somebody's going to buy your piece of paper and the reason why i'm saying it piece of paper because at that time you have no presentation center you have a building under construction and you're carrying around a piece of paper and a floor plan that somebody's going to be putting their money on and buying from you right and a lot of people think that they're going to squeeze every meat off the bone or you know take every meat off the bone when they go to flip it If the unit is valued at 550, they want the exact 550. It doesn't work like that. You need to incentivize the next buyer to say, hey, the current market value, if you were to go buy in the resale where you can walk into a property, would be 550. You see what you're buying. But as an assignment, you have to approach it that way where it's more attractive for them. Maybe 540. So they're incentivized to pick up your paper. And in
1: and, and, and many situations, so an assignment for those who are listening that don't understand is when you're selling the rights to a contract, contract. on the purchase of a property. So essentially before it's complete, right? Exactly. So you've bought it, now you're selling it to someone else. So incentivizing the buyer, I mean, my understanding is that in many circumstances, these contracts, you can't even publicly post. So you can't put them on the multiple must, listing yeah. service uh, where again, for a listener, that's where you find most of your listings that you're jumping on realtor.ca or wherever you're looking or your real estate agent is sending you listings are usually coming from this public listing site. So if you're a seller, you're typically not seeing or sorry, you're not getting that huge buyer pool, Mm -hmm. unless you're working with an agent, perhaps who has a broad network. But you know, obviously, that's case by case. So there's a risk associated with not being able to expose that property to a lot of people not to mention assignment
0: fees. Oh, yes.
1: So explain assignment fees. So
0: assignment fee would be is what a developer puts on the contract says If you decide to move this contract forward to an expire, they're going to charge you a fee. Sometimes it's in percentage. Sometimes it's a flat fee. And there's additional some admin fees in the contract. So what I've seen is that developers used to have high assignment fees. And then because of the 2021 boom, they started to lower the assignment fee. But what they have done now is lowering assignment fees is become a trap. So they'll say 0% assignment. But the price of the unit has gone up let's just say $25,000, 30000 mm. from where it should have been. So they're charging a premium on the price now where and then showcasing a 0% assignment fee. So you have to really watch out for what the unit is worth and whether the 0% assignment fee even makes sense for you. If you're overpaying, right. what's the point of having 0% assignment fee when you're not going to have no margins to flip it in the first place? Yep. So something to uh, watch out for um, uh, when it comes to assignments with developers.
1: Yeah, man. And I think just the idea of like overpaying and the concept of what is it worth is that itself is a very difficult thing for anyone to consider because, you know, even in residential resale real estate, we typically talk to our clients who are looking at buying something as if, even if it's a primary or if it's an investment property. And we say, okay, well, historically over the last five, 10, 15, 20 years, we try to use a longer time horizon mm-hmm. because it's a little bit more. Sustainable, but right. say say over the last ten years, a minimum yep. appreciation rate is X. Let's just say seven yep. percent year over year. So based on a you know relatively stable market, which we don't know what that is anymore, but mm-hmm. a generally longer time frame of five to seven years, yep. we can assume that your property of a million dollars could be worth one point you know two million dollars in four years or one point four million dollars in five years, and, and on and on and on right. and on. Well, when you're buying a presale, how are you actually judging to see if the value is there? Is that the same metrics you're using so, or something so, else?
0: I'll it. So the metrics that we use, so developers use different metrics. Developers are going to charge you the potential appreciation and most of these developers will charge you the premium upfront. Okay. So for example, if in 2027, the area of street Central is anticipated to be around $1,200 a square feet. Yep. They're going to post that on their price tag in selling you now which is four years uh, earlier. So a lot of people think, oh yes, it'll be worth that much in, in in 2027. So I'm okay paying for that. But then why are you investing in pre-sales? The idea of investment is, and this is how you make the safest pre-sale investment. You look at a unit and you do the dollar per square feet cost um, in the pre-sale market. And then you go look in the resale market, go on the MLS, look at a similar unit, which is one to two years old. And you do the dollar per square feet cost of that unit. What you want is a maximum of five percent premium on the pre-sale mark on mm. the pre unit. Currently in Surrey Central, there's about a twenty percent premium on pre-sale units in comparison to a resale unit. Right. A one-bedroom in Surrey Central you can get for four seventy-five to five hundred thousand. dollars yep. If you go to the pre-sale side, you're now paying five seventy-five to six hundred and twenty-five thousand. That is a way bigger of our premium. Well, what? That's a, almost a 20, 25% premium on that price, which I would never get my investors to buy because you're not going to make money. You won't have any margins to assign, even if it's the worst case scenario for you where you're not even looking to make profits anymore. You can't close on it. You can't even assign it at cost. Right. Even if you sell it at cost, you're losing money. So right. that's why you never want to buy into those higher premiums when it comes to pre
1: Yeah, and so assigning a cost to explain that to a listener, you know, once you get to completion or close to completion, you're actually trying to uh, resell that unit or resell the unit with, prior to it being complete. You're suggesting that it would be a possible likelihood or very likely uh, chance that someone who's selling that contract might barely make back what they actually exactly. bought it for at that time. Exactly. Yeah, that's really good. So basically look at the actual dollar per square foot of something that's sold, not selling, sold, right? Sold, exactly. sold and look at the time horizon, three years, five years, and look at a 5% premium. So does the time horizon play into that as well? So like, for example, if it's three years versus two years or five years?
0: So when we're looking at a time horizon, minimum, I'm looking for three years. Yep. Anything less than that, it has to be something that you're looking to move into. If you're going to go for a 1-year completion or 2-year completion, this has to be your primary residence. You say there I'm going to move into this myself.
1: So even if you're going to rent the property out?
0: Even if you're going to rent the property out? Hmm. Because I want you to stay in the construction phase as long as possible. Why do we need to close on it if we can keep you in 4-year construction phase when you're holding the same asset?
1: Interesting. Okay. Right? Yeah.
0: If we can get if we can hold an asset with only 10% down for as long as possible. Yeah. Right, And then close yeah. on it. On closing, if the unit continues to go up, we just take more equity out.
1: Right, right. That's good. That's good. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit here. Let's jump into the financing Yes, piece. financing side. Because ultimately, obviously, I think most of this conversation has been super helpful to understand how to look for, what to look for, and what not to look for. But pre-sales, as far as purchasing them on the financing side, for me, on the mortgage financing side, I've found that most people have zero understanding of how that time horizon impacts them, mm-hmm. the purpose of the property, and how that impacts them and what the down payment requirement is. You know What are some of the most common questions that you get asked on a day to day basis when it comes to the uh, financing piece?
0: Yeah. So here's a common question that we get asked. If I buy a unit for 500,000 and in two years or three years completion time, the unit is now worth $580,000, I have built up $80,000 of appreciation. How do I access that money when it comes to the financing side?
1: Oh, that's so cool. And I think that first and foremost, most people think it's pretty cut and dry. You've probably found that too, where they, hey, all of a sudden my property's worth five hundred eighty thousand. Cool, I can borrow eighty percent of that. Is that what you find usually?
0: People have that assumption. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, your traditional bank how it, how it works with the financing itself is essentially that they're going to finance based on current market value of the property, which is purchase price plus GST. So GST is inclusive. So five hundred thousand dollar property plus G- who knows what GST. GST is going to be in five years, whatever. But as of today, the 5% GST, so 525 grand, they're going to qualify your mortgage based on a $525,000 purchase price. Just because it's worth 580, your bank, TD or what big red or big yellow or any of these guys, big blue, they're not interested in financing you based on 580 per se, because your contractual price was $525,000. However, there's, there's a few key ways that people can get access to that money. I mean, the first one obviously is to close on the property via some form of a vehicle, whether it's a mortgage or a line of credit, and then refinance at a later date, typically let's say 12 months later. So that's one option that they can get access to the money if they can hold for that period of time. Uh, the other option is there are these subset of lenders. Uh, some people call them B lenders, some people call them C lenders. Some, there's also privately, there's all these different names for them, but at the end of the day, they're alternative banks that are out there that will finance based on appraised value. So if your property is Let's worth $580,000, you could finance up to 75 or 80% of that amount, which could result in in basically 100% financing the property. Very nice. Right? Like, so we had a client recently where we financed them, and it was a similar circumstance, actually, funny enough, where we were able to finance them 80% of the today market value, so $580,000. So we're walking away with, a, a I can't remember the exact numbers, but 450, 460 property, or sorry, mortgage amount on this particular property, mm. which almost financed the entire thing, wow. as you can imagine, which basically in the end resulted in in them putting down like like 5% of the property, really. When in this case, for them, it's a rental property. So that's huge. So then they were able to take that extra equity that they had put into the property because they, they were intending on putting 20% down and now move that over to another investment. And so that that's, that's an interesting question. And I'm not surprised to hear that you get that a lot. No. Guidelines can change on that from time to time, but it is based on the... the Built value, the built value, which option they go with is really subjective to each individual. But yeah, that's that's a really key one, man. Got it. So So that comes up a lot, hey?
0: No, yeah, that's, that's one of them is how do I access that money that's built up over time? Do I close on it, then refinance, like you said, mm-hmm. and then access that money or line of credit? Is that an option? Mm. If you close on a property that's worth 580, yes, the bank gave you uh, uh, mortgage on, mm. but the property's appraised. So when that same lender appraises the property at 580, mm. is there a chance of them accessing that through a line of credit?
1: Yeah, so same concept applies. When you complete on the mortgage, your traditional lenders, your traditional banks are gonna be based on the purchase contract completion price. Right. That's what they're financing you on. So if you were to try and apply for uh, additional line of credit, it could be done post-closing, post-closing at a later time based on the new valuation of the property. That's a little bit subjective to the time that you do it, and the actual institution too, because you know when we're facing a market where the lenders have constricted uh, values, they're less likely to give you as much money. And you have to keep in mind that you can only borrow up to sixty-five percent in a HELOC or eighty percent total value. So case by case but it is totally an option for someone to go after the fact and apply for a home equity line of credit for the increased value on the property in in a market where the banks have a lot of money to give away like for example 2021 yep. we, we could see that happening all the time yep. in a market like a uh, 2023 market we've seen banks tighten up they're less likely to give that money away really is going to depend on that consumer right. but I, I think that's why they should look at all their options right
0: awesome and When I come, well, let's just say, for example, you work with all lenders. Yeah, Okay. So if if somebody who bought a pre-sale comes to you and said, I need to close on this, you would help them explore all the options right yeah yeah say this is what i'm trying to do Mm -hmm. you would explore those options for them and say these are options yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah exactly so listen when it comes to pre-sale properties a lot of people i think there's a few misconceptions right off the bat when it comes to financing day one so if you have a contract that three years out typically there is a lender or a bank that has a builder mortgage approval option You know, some of the big banks will be aligned with that developer, aligned with that builder, and they'll be able to offer financing for three years or four years. They have to typically do that directly through a bank, not through you know someone like myself. But not everybody does actually do that because they might not qualify at that time. They're projecting based on their future qualification. If they're doing that, we always suggest like there's a risk associated with buying a property if you don't qualify today, but. If it's a calculated risk then and someone's comfortable taking that risk, then that's their choice and their obligation to do so. Typically, most of the lenders in the mortgage broker channel itself are a maximum of 18 months. So in some situations, we'll work with the client. We'll say, hey, get your builder approval. And then we'll work with you when it comes to completion. If there's better rates in terms of options, and we'll be awesome. able to support that journey. And in most situations, let's be honest, the banks that have the builder's approvals, they're, they're not following up with the clients. They're not calling them. They're not helping them out with their options. Yeah. It's kind of like, here's what you got. Take it and leave it sort of thing, right? So that's been a big play for a lot of people.
0: Awesome. One question that I get, like, I think this is probably the biggest questions that I get uh, all the time, most common one. Can you convert or cover GST in your mortgage? Oh yeah, same scenario. Yeah, bought it for five hundred thousand, worth yep. five eighty. Yeah, can you get the lender to pay up the five percent or? Put the five percent GST in the mortgage.
1: Totally, and that's and that between that and the assignment costs are two biggest questions that we see when it comes and misconceptions that we see when it comes to pre-sale properties. Mm-hmm. Number one, the GST forms part of the purchase price. So, at a five hundred thousand dollars purchase price, that five twenty-five is the total purchase price now. Right. And where that messes people up is they put down a deposit of hundred, let's say twenty percent, which is hundred grand on five hundred. And when it comes to completion, well, obviously with our clients, this doesn't happen, but we've seen it happen where like, well, why, why do I need more money than $100,000? Well, if you're putting 20% down, it's 20% of 525, mm-hmm. not 20% of 500. And I, I think people don't realize the difference between a deposit, which is just a placeholder, right? Wow. So it's a placeholder that's held until completion. Whereas the down payment is the actual money that you're leveraging with the bank to get the mortgage on the remaining difference. So 20% of 525.
0: So let me clarify this. So. If you buy for five hundred thousand and you say I will pay the five percent GST out of my pocket, then you don't need the twenty percent on the five
1: twenty five. You're doing the same thing one way or another, right? right? Or because either. at the end of the day, it's a total purchase price. If you're putting twenty percent down, it's twenty percent of X. The lenders are gonna look at it as the total Got as it. complete value at the end of the day when it comes to that number. So that that's that that was a big one. The same thing we see happen when it comes to assignment contracts. So if you're assigning or flipping a contract, right. you you actually can qualify to to that assignment cost. So for example, if you're buying a contract, well, not you, but if clients buying a contract off someone, there's a lift, right? That's mm-hmm. the amount of money that they're charging as a profit. Of course. So you can definitely finance that. And I think that there's a huge misconception because a lot of the people at the bank and or mortgage companies, and in some cases, brokers don't even know that that lift can be financed. But because that forms a portion of the purchase price, right, as long as right, the contract right, is right. written properly, which is a whole other conversation. Yeah, about.
0: yeah, yeah. So going back to that question there, so the lift. So what Alex is referring to is if somebody buys it for 500,000 and then they assign it to the next buyer for five fifty. Now, you're talking about the bank financing the 550, not the 500, but the 550, which is the final. And is that subject to the property appraising?
1: Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So So that's something very
0: important for for listeners is that you need to make sure that you're not overpaying even in the assignment part. Yeah. If it doesn't appraise, then, then you're not getting that mortgage yeah so it needs to appraise
1: yeah now see now you're interviewing me here but I like it but so that that actually brings us back so let's get so back on track here with the last couple points before and we're gonna have to do a whole other episode on all this stuff but like some of the potential risks and downfalls of pre-sale properties and or assignment contracts is the that appraisal consideration particularly when the market takes a little bit of a dive short form and which is why I think you mentioned it's important to be able to complete and close and hold long term and make sure that that's not all your money because if you buy that $550,000 contract, whether it's a pre-sale or an assignment contract, and the appraisal comes in at $500,000, you've gotta make up a portion of that difference, right? Have no. you seen that happen? Yes,
0: yes, so, and this is something that I think we'll go back to as well, is when you're buying a presale, the product that you're buying is very crucial. So there's few products that you're looking at. You're looking at a condo, you're looking at a townhome, you're looking at a detached, just like any of the resale. But when I'm we're looking with inve- working with investors, we're very focused on condos only. Yep. Because condos have a longer construction uh, timeframe, which allows you to build up more equity and give the market some room to breathe. Yeah. What happens is what I found, a lot of people get in trouble. And that a lot of people lost money, their deposit and got sued is townhomes. Mm-hmm. So because townhomes tend to have between six months to 12 months and maximum I've seen is about 18 months of construction time. So what has happened is in 2021, people bought townhomes that were a year out, Yep. bought it for a million dollar, Yeah. and now the bank is appraising that same townhome for 920, 930. Yeah. So what happens now, you paid a million dollar, or you committed to a million dollar purchase. You still have to commit to that because you've given your deposit to the developer. When you go to the lender, and the lender says it's only worth 920, Now you have to make up that $80,000 difference on top of your deposit. Right. So that's why townhomes are not your pre-sale investments, period. I don't care what somebody says. Hmm. You might hit home with one or two investment opportunities, but 95% of the time, townhomes are not your investment product. That's that's, good. That's only if you're looking to move into it. Interesting. That's the only time I would buy uh, a pre-sale townhome is if 100%, this is your move-in home.
1: All right, all right. That is that is good. So so look out for townhomes as far as uh, investments or pre-sales, and, and and avoid that unless you're moving into it. And yeah. of course, you've got a good nest egg there. Is there? We got a couple couple last last quick questions sure. here for you, buddy. And I think these are the juicy ones. So listeners, better stick around for this one here. You're projecting out, you know, two to three years. And I know your focus is mostly in the Fraser Valley and the Greater Vancouver area for pre-sale properties. If someone's looking to buy a pre-sale investment today, where should they be looking and, and what would you be looking to buy right now?
0: Right, so particular areas, I'll tell you the area I'm shying away from. One is Surrey Central. I know it's an area that's really you know buzzed around just because of the potential coming there. But I think the price point is really, really high compared to the resale. So one of the only thing that, that, that is most important to look for when you're looking at areas and where to buy is going to be is how close is your pre-sale purchase unit or the price for the pre- pre-sale unit in comparison to the resale unit. That yeah. is the only metrics that you need to start with. Yeah. You ignore everything else. I don't care how big of the master plan community is, like none of that stuff is going to matter if your premium is 20%, 25% from the resale, because even if the resale market goes up 20%, you're still breaking even. That's the that's the, that's the crazy part. You need to be as close as possible to the resale market when you're looking at pre-sales. Okay. And, that, that, and area-wise, in Lower Mainland we've seen if Surrey goes up, Langley goes up, if Langley goes up, Ebertsford goes up, it just flows down east with appreciation. But again, if I'm looking in Ebertsford right now, there's uh, projects I'm looking in Ebersford, where I think have a lot of potential. I'm looking for margins. That would be now in Ebertsford, I can get a two bedroom, two bathroom condo in the pre-sale phase around 525, mm. 530. And if you go into the resale market, you'll probably pay the same price. Mm. The only premium you're going to be paying is the 5% GST. But right. remember, your completion is four years out, three years right. out. Right. So that's how you make the safest pre investment is cool. stick close to the pre-sale the so,
1: so it's not so much just one particular area, but you're, oh. you're looking at margins wherever you're going. That's awesome, man. Any other sneak projects or upcoming things that people should know about?
0: Projects? I really don't speak on projects cool. for many reasons because I think developers do tend to change up based on what their yep. motivations are. Yep. Uh, they might launch it at a low price and all of a sudden they see so much demand and they're gonna bump up the price. So I really don't stick with one developer or the other. I don't yep. answer to developers. I look for the client and say, this is what our plan is. Let me find you the project that fits our cool. needs.
1: That's awesome, man. Listen, sir, I know you've got a wealth of information. You I have one, one more, more question point. for okay. you before yeah. we wrap up. Yeah. Okay. Question we'll
0: wrap up. Co-signing, if somebody is going to co-sign a mortgage and they don't want to be on title, What's the work around that?
1: So if someone wants to co-sign, basically in a situation where someone is looking to co-sign a mortgage application, if they need a co-applicant, that person must be on title of property to use their income and credit. And so basically what that means is if you're in a situation where you're buying a property and you're buying it residentially speaking under your personal name, for you to get a lender to use your income, generally speaking, assuming we're talking the same language here and having the same conversation, Mm -hmm. if you're using that person's income, and assets, they would typically want them to be on title. The few exceptions to that would be typically that there are a few credit unions will consider having what's called a guarantor, which is where someone is not necessarily on title to property, but we can use their income to assist in qualification. Although, I mean, I know there's a lot of case by case by case by case. I would say that as a cosigner, you would have a huge risk that you'd be taking not being on title that property and not having any ownership. So if someone was going to take the approach, of co-applying with someone, but not having their name on the title of the property, mm-hmm. I would highly recommend that they get themselves written up a co-buy agreement, Got which it. is an agreement that you can get written, there's multiple names for a joint venture agreement, something right. like that, where it's written up by a lawyer, which covers that you are a portion owner, what your share is, you know, what's the exit cost and so forth. So. As a rule of thumb, it's generally accepted that most people that are co-signing and they're putting their name on the title, they are of course, their income is used uh, and and they're on the title itself. So back to your point, basically in short, you can with some lenders not be on title, but it's not widely accepted nor highly recommended by most lawyers, especially if you don't have a co-buy agreement.
0: So the (laughs) scenario, the question came from a son co-signing for parents, but he doesn't wanna lose his first time home buyers
1: benefits. Mm, interesting. So that's interesting. where it
0: came from. He's like, okay, if I buy a pre-sale, yeah. I'm co signed, uh, I'm looking well, my our mortgage is coming for renewal. Yeah. And my I might need to co sign. Yeah. But what are my chances of buying a pre sale and then using up my first time right. home buyers.
1: So, so there's some technicalities there, yeah. of course, we always recommend, so I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna to give too much legal course, advice on that course. side, but talk to a lawyer. As far as we understand, last time we checked, there was a workaround because it's not your primary residence, it's not for you, you're not an owner, uh, or you're not the person who's living in the property. Right. Uh, you should technically be able to be considered a first-time buyer in the eyes of the BC provincial guidelines for that. Uh, but that can change. So we always recommend, awesome. obviously, talk to a lawyer awesome. about that More piece. But good question. Much. Awesome. All right. That's good stuff. So, hey, Uzair, you're doing all sorts of presentations. You got all sorts of stuff on the go for realtors, for end users, for clients. So don't worry. We'll put all your information in the notes. We'll put awesome. your information all the socials, all that kind of stuff. Thanks for coming out, man. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. This glad. is good. This is good. All right, guys, you wanna learn more about this kind of stuff, you definitely wanna make sure to stay tuned to the channel because we're posting all sorts of content. And make sure if you're loving this episode to hit that share button because that is how we help more people. Thank you so much we'll see you on the next one that was an unreal episode of the flow i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did on my side right here if you haven't already done so make sure to check out all of the incredible resources that we have available you can find us on instagram at flow mortgage co you can find us on our website getflowmortgage.ca and of course don't forget our free first time home buyer masterclass that's currently available on our website for anyone who listens to the episodes and if you loved what you listened to here today the only thing that we ask for is to share this with someone else that you think this could help and hey maybe leave us a great review online